The views and opinions expressed in the Humanizing the Headset podcast are those of the authors, guests, and hosts of the podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinion or position of Humanizing the Headset as a whole. This podcast may contain adult language and adult content. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome, everyone. It's been a little while. We've had a, a hiatus of sorts. Yes. It's been really busy it for all of been. us, yeah, like exceedingly so. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, but not in a bad way. I mean, it's just that's just how it is, right? I mean, it hasn't been great. Let's just say that. <laughs> no, well, maybe. Maybe it's been bad. What... Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, let's see. We're starting it off right. What number are we on? What number? What number? Oh, I have, I have no idea what number oh. this is. <laughs> 13? <Podcast> number. <laughs> Lucky number 13, maybe? Is it? I think it's 14 or 15. Is it 14? It is 14. Number 14. Lucky 14. Wow, look at us. 14, yes. We made it through 14 of these. It seems like it's been so much longer. It does. It does. <laughs> well, almost a year. I know. That's crazy. I, but mm -hmm. I think it's gone great actually yeah, uh, so today for everybody we've got uh, me brendan kaylee janelle is joining us today hi janelle yay hi. we're recording on zoom so we can see them you guys won't you know have the pleasure of seeing all of us um so it's it's kind of funny but today we have a special guest pat doyle is with us from vision for change hi pat morning how are you um i'm good uh, thanks for thanks for joining us no i really want to thank you because um i've really come to learn what it is you do as a profession and i i've also learned that you don't get thanked enough and i really honestly believe that if the general public had any idea what you did they'd be thanking you every single day I think it's important not only maybe for um, the telecommun telecommunication world, but really the general public um, to know what it is that you do. We would agree. Uh, that, yeah. That's the whole idea, right? <laughs> As to what, uh, not, not about the, hey, we all need more pats on the back. The recognition for what we do is always great. Um, it is a thankless job, has been for many years, and hopefully we're slowly helping to change that you know, by educating the public and bringing a bunch of people together. That's our entire goal, right? Get to give uh, telecommunicators, I'm I, being a little sarcastic because Pat asked us how long we've been telecommunicators. And I said, well, since they started calling us telecommunicators. Um, <laughs> wasn't that long ago, I don't think. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's our whole goal is to educate people as well as give dispatchers and outlets, uh, resources, whether it be, you know, the biggest part being mental health, you know, that's, yes. that's obviously the, the biggest thing we need uh, or want to provide for people in our industry, especially as telecommunicators and then other resources, you know, like on our site, we have the, I just used it a day ago, the plate type code, you know, for states to submit that. I and use I, it every day. I have it bookmarked on my browser. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. instead of having to dig around to find that stuff so yep yeah 
we appreciate you recognizing that though, Pat. I, you know, I, I don't know, a lot of people don't realize what it takes to get police or fire or, or an ambulance to their house. They just think it's magic and uh, they don't have an appreciation for that. It's kind of like, um, you know, if you just magically had money show up in your bank, you wouldn't question it. You'd just be like, oh, it's just there. Sure right. wouldn't. Oh, yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit, Pat, about what you do. Edu let's educate the public about what who Pat is, where you come from, how'd you get into this line of work, and, and what it is that you do. Okay. Um, well, it was definitely not by choice. Um, I actually worked for an insurance company for 10 years as a senior claim analyst um, with medical and uh, dental claims. And then I had an opportunity to stay home and raise my three boys, <clears throat> for, excuse me, <coughs> I'm sorry, um, for uh, a few years. Um, and what I haven't shared with you is that, you know, our family kept a pretty good secret about um, my mom actually having a mental illness, which, you know, I prefer to call a neurological brain disorder. Um, I just think mental illness still sounds so derogatory. Some people think we should just continue pushing the word mental illness and get people more comfortable with it, but really it's a neurological brain disorder. So um, yeah, that, um, so when did the secret come out this is what the question becomes, right? Yeah. Okay, so um, when I, you know, I, I kind of go into like a little bit of my childhood. So I'll tell you when the secret started and then how it all got revealed. So when I was 10 years old, my mom came into my bedroom and she whispered into my ear that my dad was trying to poison me. And I remember being just like shocked and locking myself in the bathroom upstairs and thinking, you know, is my dad really trying to hurt me or is there something the matter with my mom? And I remember that she'd been pacing the floors a lot. She thought she was getting secret messages from the radio, from the TV. Um, and the next day, my mom was gone. Now, there's six kids, right? And my dad was a traveling salesman, so he had to continue to provide for our family. Um, so he hired a woman caregiver to take care of us six kids um, because my mom was in the hospital. Now, I didn't realize that she was in the hospital um, until my dad asked my sister and I if we wanted to go visit her. Now, keep in mind, treatment in those days was at least 30 days at a time, 30 days, several months. And um, so when my sister and I went to visit my mom, I just remember my mom taking off her wedding ring and throwing it at my dad as hard as she could. And that was kind of my you know, introduction. Um, we didn't hear all my aunts and uncles, all my uh, relatives live in the Chicagoland area, and we didn't hear from anybody during that time. Um, and I don't know about your dad, but my dad had a way, right, of giving you a look when you knew you weren't supposed to say anything. <laughs> and um, words weren't necessary. Um, if words were necessary, it was probably your formal name, like Patricia, <laughs> um, but you knew. <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, um, that was my introduction into, um, you know, 
my mom's illness. I saw the symptoms first, but really didn't realize what I was seeing. Interesting. So you think, so I, I'm going to ask the question, what, sure. what was your mom diagnosed with? Okay. So that, that was kind of the beginning of how I found out what her diagnosis was. In other words, um, we had had some incidents with the police with my mom. And then when I was 28, my dad died of a failed kidney transplant. Oh. Um, the stress, you know, of that event, my dad dying. And, you know, I always like to say stress impacts all of us, you know, stress, you know, if you have stress on your heart, you know, you might have high blood pressure. If you have stress in your stomach, you might get an ulcer. If you have, you know, skin conditions, they might flare up. But stress on the brain led my mom to go into another full-blown psychotic episode. And as I mentioned, I was processing um, health insurance claims. So after her hospitalization, I said, mom, I'll submit your hospital bill. And so when she got her hospital bill and I looked at the diagnosis code and I saw these two words and it said manic depression. And I said, mom, you have manic depression. And she looked at me and she goes, I do. <laughs> and I got to tell you, at that time, I understood the word crazy. And crazy wasn't my mother. And crazy wasn't this household that I grew up in. But crazy was the system that never educated my mom, that mm -hmm. never educated my dad, um, ultimately not our family. So what I didn't say to you is that um, I had a fear of failure. Um, through probably these episodes of my mom being gone because a mom is like a natural cheerleader to the family. And so at, um, I had started college classes, but I never finished my degree. So at that point, I'm going to go back to college and find out all about these two words, manic depression, which today is called bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm a late bloomer. I'm a late graduate. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I know what these I know what these young people are thinking. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, it's interesting because uh, you're right. That term it wasn't until what I would say the late '90s, probably maybe early 2000s, that people actually started calling it bipolar. You know, fully it, it was a mix. It was manic depressive, and then it was bipolar manic depressive, or um, you know, some combination of that. And you're like, well, what is what is this? And it's because they didn't have a, a term for it. Um, and it's ultimately, correct me if I'm wrong. It's basically it's a chemical imbalance. Is that? Is yes. That yes. Yeah. Um, and I would say maybe the 1990s, maybe that stood out because the 1990s became the decade of the brain where mm -hmm. they started doing brain scan imaging and they could see different parts, different regions of the brain lighting up. Um, they still use it um, somewhat. It's not like perfected um, because you can't do a blood test. You can't do an X-ray to diagnose somebody. It's all either self-report or family report um, so it's a very challenging, uh, a very, very challenging illness, and it carries a tremendous amount of stigma. Oh, of course. It, it's, again, you go back to the term crazy because people didn't have a, uh, a means to describe the actions or the behavior that, that 
folks that have bipolar were experiencing. So to them, it, it was crazy, you know, and they didn't have a, a better term for it. And then, you know, if you go way farther back, you know, that's just what people labeled everything that doesn't make sense. Um, and I still think we do some of that, but, you know, we're a little bit more, we're slowly getting to the point where we understand what's happening with people and we're not, we're less likely to say they're crazy, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that came from probably just not understanding, you know, cause it's confusing. I've seen it firsthand. Somebody go from okay to flipping that switch and they're doing some, some very strange, uh, scary behavior, you know, right. um, it's, it's, it's very bizarre and very, uh, I don't know how to how to explain it's just it's overwhelming you're like what the hell is happening right now you know you really don't know what to do except wait to see what's going to happen you know as long as nobody's getting hurt so and I am you know you were talking a little bit about the language you know the language you know in college was called abnormal psychology um in the police world it was deviant behavior go on to psychiatric ward it's be careful of elopement um so you know i don't think not only does it impact obviously the individual but the family i hit twice with it because one they it's like a tornado going out of control right they see it coming there's nothing they can do because of the mental health code law because they haven't threatened anybody um, if they haven't threatened anybody themselves or unable to care for themselves. So you're watching it and you're waiting for this tornado to touch down. And when it touches down, it causes a lot of destruction. And as that person goes into the hospital and they get the medicine, the correct medicine, and slowly over time, um, you know, come back to the reality of uh, the behavior that they did do during that time, um, it's devastating. It's um, personally humiliating. Um, I mean, come on, if you're outside scrubbing rocks at two in the morning naked and the police come, um, it's not exactly after your hospitalization that you want to see, see that same officer, you know, two weeks later, right? right. Um, but, you know, I just have an incredible passion about family education you mentioned earlier today, you know, resources that are available, kind of clearing up the misunderstandings. And, you know, we can, we can laugh, but just to recognize in the moment for a family, there's nothing funny about it, you know, because it's so painful. So let me just give you an idea. Um, so when I was 10, right, that's when I was first saw my mom's, I introduced my mom's illness. But when I was 16, the manager at Kmart called and I picked up the phone at home and he said, you know, the police have been called and your mom's shopping erratically and somebody needs to come and pick her up. And so, you know, I put my head down and I thought, you know, when I walk into Kmart, I'm going to have my head down because I don't want to look at everybody rolling their eyes and snickering and laughing because I knew, you know, my mom, I love my mom and she just needed help. And when I got back into the manager's um, office, there my mom was sitting in a chair, sobbing, crying. And right next to her was a Kmart cart just filled with stuff. I mean, it was filled with, I always say filled with crap. Like it made no sense to me what she put in there. And I never wanted to make eye contact with that really tall police officer. 
um, there's a really good book, you know, how you can survive when they're depressed. Because what families actually experience is something called depression fallout. All that shame and embarrassment that you see, you know, like in my case, my mom going through, it's like that cloud comes over you, right? Yeah. And yeah. as we're walking out of Kmart um, together, and I honestly don't remember if it was the same day or the next day, but my mom must have realized she was going to be hospitalized again. And so she took off in the car, and the next call my dad got was from the Indiana State Police. Um, so the shame and embarrassment, I always think of the word shame. What's the first two letters? S-H. Sh mm. Right? Mm. And then what's the word in embarrassment? Ass. Ass. Yeah. And there's, you know, um, the good news, you know, I would say there's good news today that, you know, we are getting educated. Um, George W. Bush, um, they did a real, they did a mental health study back in the early 2000s. And um, they started to realize, see, in my mom's day, you couldn't be, you couldn't be diagnosed until you were 18. Okay, you had to be 18 and older to be diagnosed. But in the oh. 1990s, yeah, with the decade of the brain, they realized that of all the lifetime cases, and I have to be really careful when I say this, but of all the lifetime cases of people who have mental illness, they recognized that they had signs and symptoms by the time they were age 14. So now I'm not saying half the kids in class, okay, um, but we know that if we get into the schools and we start talking about it, um, we can start to identify those students sooner. And the hope would be um, the earlier we can identify them, you know, kind of like cancer, the sooner it gets diagnosed, possibly the better the outcome, right? Sure. Um, so, and then out of that same report came the next 25% of people are diagnosed between the ages of 18 and 24. So then I would say to you, where's our sons and daughters between the ages of 18 and 24? College. Right. And where else? Working. Working. The bars. Yeah. The bars, absolutely. <laughs> I, remember, I remember those days. <laughs> and um, the military, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or in their parents' basement. And what really becomes interesting is that colleges will take parents money all right but by law they can't say what your son or daughter if they're struggling at college without that student's permission so we have a lot of kids that go away to college that end up coming back to the community colleges um, because they've gone through maybe a first episode of depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia um, and so, you know, um, then the next 25% are diagnosed after age 24. So the goal to me is the more education, the more we can normalize it, the more we can humanize it, right? Like humanizing the headset. I mean, let, let's start talking about this. We're talking one out of four, if not one out of five families. Come on, people, you know? The, so, you know, it's interesting. When you say they're diagnosed, is it because it isn't caught earlier or it didn't present earlier? Um, you mean when someone's diagnosed later? Yeah, because you said, you know, there is some uh, percentage, I think it was a 25% oh, shows right. 
by the time they're 14 and then 18 to 20, 24, and then after 24. So is it because it's not presenting itself or it's not recognized? Which, which I, think, one? I think you got it. It, it was not recognized. Mm, okay. And probably if you talk to um, schools where kids were missing a lot of school, um, probably, um, or what do they call them? The, oh, it's kind of like when you're, uh, what's the word? Um, if you miss a lot of school, then they're gonna send out a staff member that's gonna try to find out why are you missing so many days? The truant, is that what we're talking about? The truant, yeah, yeah. yeah. truancy officer, thank you. Yes, the truancy officer. And they're finding that a lot of those kids, right, might have started with anxiety or it's depression or they're hearing voices. So you're right. Um, the education just wasn't there. In fact, I just want to say one thing. Um, my dad was my hero because despite all these psychotic episodes, he stayed with my mom, even though he used to always say, your mother is weak and she just can't handle things. So as a little girl, I used to think, well, then I better not cry because if I cry, someone will take me away. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I wish my dad were alive today. He could have used the services of NAMI that I, um, the National Alliance on Mental Illness that I ended up working for, uh, for about 10 years. Um, it's really a shame because we were blaming people and we were thinking they were weak. And that is the farthest thing from the truth. Yeah, of course. Crazy in meaning, yeah. and I mean that in the like that's a it's a it's it's an interesting it's it's interesting to see how people um, develop based on their experiences. So when I say that, I'm obviously I'm not I'm not saying crazy. Um, it's just the circumstances that brought you to where you're at. And I guess it's the, it's no different than us talking about the trauma that, that we experience as dispatchers or as police officers or whatever. You learn to deal with so much and you figure out ways to work through it. You know, you did that by not showing weakness, right? Because you didn't want to be labeled that way because you saw what was happening to her. Well, and, and to be honest with you, I, I was not diagnosed myself um, until I took a class that NAMI called Family to Family. And by going through all the signs and symptoms and the medication and whatnot, I recognized that I probably had anxiety all my life. So as a little girl, I'm biting my nails all the time. Um, because of that secret, you know, feelings have to go somewhere. Right. And, with police, you know, dispatch, you know, when you push them down, you know, you got to do something to cope with them. So what, how I coped with it, when I was in high school, I was extremely overweight. Now, um, I have one of my brothers started drinking at a very young age. So I think, you know, when you can't talk about your feelings, and you probably can't even express them, you know, um, I mean, if you haven't talked about them, um, then you're going to reach for something else, whatever that happens to be, whatever that, you know, that distraction. Soothing. Yes. Um, you know, food was comforting, tasted good. Right. So to a little girl, 10 years old, it tasted good to my brother older in high school, drinking tasted pretty good. Right. Um, so yeah, um, I think it's about feelings and that's what I see even with officers, 
Um, and the profession that you're in, you know, you cannot be exposed to the kind of trauma you guys are exposed to and think, oh, it's no big deal. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, you have to in the moment, I get, you cannot fall apart in the moment, but somehow that has to come back up at some time and be expressed. Sure. And when it's, and you know, what I notice about police officers, you know, after training them for so long, um, is they start to push down their emotions. So they almost look like a person that doesn't have emotions. Do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. at church, cause there was an officer at our church and I thought, oh my God, he's kind of scary. You know, he's, he's just so, um, you know, um, not emotional. And it wasn't really until I started training the police and um, cause I had no experience of the first responder world at all, dispatch, you know, police or anything that I really started to understand um, why they ha may have that demeanor. And then also for me personally, why it's so important to educate them too, that when they go to a counselor, they gotta make sure that that counselor understands the profession because there's a lot of marriage problems, um, a lot of divorces and you know, if a counselor does not understand the first responder world, they could misinterpret that non-emotional person as like, oh yeah, I can see why, yeah, you know, right. I feel that way instead yeah. of understanding the profession. It's interesting. Wow. It's, it's heavy. So I think a lot of us are thinking about uh, people we know, our own experiences, you know, as to how it affects you. Um, you don't, you don't realize sometimes how it affects you and the things that you turn off, I guess, when talking with people. I, I mean, that's, that's a big thing. Sometimes you're just, you want to care. I, and it's not that I think sometimes we, I don't, I don't think we don't care. It's just, you know, I, I, I have to do this all the time. I, I don't, I don't have time for, for caring, especially when you're at work, you know? So I, I'll give you a, you know, a, a recent, uh, I'm gonna share Brendan's story from a couple of nights ago. He, he took a, uh, a call for a sex assault of a, a 16 year old female. And uh, it was, it was I, I wasn't on the call with them, but I was there. He did an amazing job at giving everything he possibly could from the person calling it in, you know, this girl was more or less saved by a, a, somebody that heard her yelling. And, um, you know, and I'm not telling anything that's not already out there on the news. So, um, but after that, everybody in the room checked in on Brendan. Hey, are you okay? Are you okay? You want to take a few minutes? And Brendan very wisely took a few minutes and, and went outside and got some fresh air, you know, and mind you, it's, it's like 90 degrees outside. So it wasn't that fresh. Um, so he just came back sweaty. Worse, yeah. Worse than he left. Um, like you want some right card, buddy. Um, but no, he, uh, he wisely took that time and came back and, and, you know, was okay. You know, I, you know, we haven't had a chance or none of us have had a chance really to talk a lot with them about, how he processed it, if he processed it. But one of the things we tend to do as dispatchers, even if we do that, once you've done that, it's like, yeah, it's all gone. Done. You're I'm good. Done. I'm good. Yeah. 
I got rid of it, you know. Yeah. Actually, I went outside. I cried. I went outside and I called my mom and I cried. Um, it's, I, I've taken, sadly, um, many sex assault calls of varying degrees, um, none of which involved a minor where I was speaking to the minor and where it had just happened. Um, so everything was very fresh. Uh, the emotions were very raw. Um, even from the person who rescued her and saved her, she was crying in the background as well. Um, it was a lot to take in. I, I mean, most of the calls that we get are in progress calls, right? Uh, most 911 calls anyway. Um, but this, it, it was, it was just different. You know, I've never spoken to a child right after the fact, you know, um, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot to take in. So I, I posted something on, on our uh, Facebook page about it yesterday and that helped. Um, I can still, I, I'm never going to not hear that, you know, that's going to be one of those calls that's going to stay with me forever. Um, but the, the, I've processed it, I think by talking about it. Uh, and I know that I have a great support system. So if I am, you know, having some other troubles, I know I can reach out to someone, uh, you guys, um, or even go see a therapist. I, I have no, no problems with that either. Yeah. So I gotta say, I think it's so cool to hear how many people reached out to you, um, your yes. colleague, you know, because uh, I remember um, a deputy chief telling me one time that a young girl about 13 um, tried to hang herself, but the scarf that she used stretched far enough that when the two officers got there, they were able to cut her down and she, you know, um, she lived, right? And so the deputy chief called those two officers, he said, into his office and said, you know, how are you guys doing? And they said, oh, we're fine, everything's fine. And they both walked out and he told them, he said, you, you two get back in here, you are not fine. And they both started crying. So I think, you know, other people allowing us to be human, you know, is, is really cool. But some people, you know, think that's a sign of weakness. And that's, that's the stigma we have to fight because it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Right. Being right. Human. That's another reason why I, I get some personal stuff out on Facebook as well, because I, I want our followers uh, and fellow dispatchers to know that it's okay to be upset. You know, it's okay for you to have reactions to trauma. You know, you're supposed to, because you're breathing, your heart's beating, you're alive, you know? Um, and I think it's, it's way beyond time that we normalize, you know, some of those emotions and how we react and respond to them in others. Right. And, um, you know, my very first dispatch training that I did, I just remember um, the evaluations that came back and it was the very first dispatch training. And one, one of the evaluations said, I think I need some help. And, you know, it was, it's so gratifying in the sense that, you know, it touched somebody, right. You know, um, or, and then I think um, of another um, person that spoke out at an IPSTA conference, we had done a presentation there and someone, when she was talking to him, right, um, he was telling her, you know, 
where he was leaving the note and the drawer the note would be found in and that he was gonna um he wasn't gonna shoot himself in the in the house he was gonna go out in the backyard and the next thing she heard was a gunshot and she was asking me what else could i have said and i'm like there was nothing else nothing he had predetermined this <laughs> you were the last chapter of his life but you didn't know it do you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. and it, it just made me realize you know what you guys go through and then an agency director said to me one time, even in his marriage, it took a while because, you know, his wife was upset with him when he came home, you know, after dispatching and they were trying to save a two-year-old girl, I think, from drowning. And when he got home, his wife was mad because the dishes weren't put away right, you know, from the dishwasher. And he's like, you know, what the heck, you know, but that's the thing, right? You guys... Oh. And then you're supposed to go to your kid's birthday party. <laughs> right. You know, how, how, how do you flip that switch? Yeah. You you That's mean, very I, hard I, to do. Oh, my God. I, I can't even. Like, you, it, it's. So, to be fair, to be fair, okay, we can, as dispatchers and in this, in that field, um, we can relate because we're on the one side, okay? But this person probably didn't express a lot of what was happening. So their spouse didn't know. So to her, it's run of the mill. Everything's okay. You didn't do the dishes. You know, now we hear the story and it's a trivial thing. And I'm sure he felt very, uh, well, for lack of a better term, pretty shitty when he came home and dealt with this. But if that person doesn't know what you're dealing with, they don't know how to react. So they're going right. to react how they normally would and tell you you jacked up the China or whatever you did, right? Because I, I, as you were talking, Pat, it's very interesting. We don't do enough educating and training of family members and spouses of first responders because the first responders aren't talking to their spouses uh, or sometimes they don't feel like they can talk to them because they're, you know, they, right. they're a preschool teacher or something that, that they feel like they can't relate to them. So, or you don't even want to like overwhelm them with, right. with the details, I was, I was you know, say, not everybody want, wants to hear that. Even your spouse. I don't want other, I don't want to put that on someone else. Like I don't want other people in my family to know the way that I see the world. Right. It's very Here, have some of my trauma. <laughs> exactly you don't want to trauma dump on people right. like oh how was your day um i had a bad day why uh i don't want to talk about it <laughs> like, yeah. i don't want to tell go, people this is what we're talking about though it's got to go somewhere and those, these they, so we're robbing so we know that divorce rates are high right in in the in the law enforcement we'll, we'll use law enforcement because we can all relate to that um they're high in law enforcement. And why is that? It's because there's probably not a lot of understanding from one side to the other when it comes to what's happening. And your marriage gets jacked up because you choose not to, as you just stated, Kaylee, trauma dump on the, the other person. And you're also taking that away from them to be able to be supportive of you because you're trying to protect them. And I get why but that's what creates that divide. 
because now you feel like for whatever reason, they don't understand what it is you're going through and they don't relate to you anymore. And it creates this gap in your, in their, in their relationship. Right. I'm not saying go around and tell your mom and your brother and everybody about what happened, but you know, we, you have to have that person to get it out with. And I, I feel like if they were involved more, I think a lot of relationships would probably be better when it comes to that too. But that's right. just an uneducated opinion of mine. Now, I, I will tell you the Illinois Law Enforcement and Standards Boards now pays for a book that every officer after the 40-hour training gets called The Emotional Survival Guide for Law Enforcement. And um, I read through it, you know, just to have a better understanding myself. And then I had the personal experience of a friend of mine that her husband um, is a retired officer now. But she said, you know, he would come home and play video games to just chill out, right? Just chill out. And then she would just, you know, start talking to him and he didn't want to talk about it, right? So she misstood, you know, she misunderstood that, like, like we can't talk to each other. You know, there's nothing to talk about. You know what I mean? And um, so and that's where I say, too, the mental health professional has to understand a first responder's job, why they don't talk more about it. Um, you know, it's, it's, just really, it's just really sad to me how much misunderstanding there is, like you said, about the profession. And I think it, there does need to be more education, just like family education for me to understand my mom's illness. Um, and I didn't mention, but I have a brother and sister that have the illness too, because we have a genetic predisposition. Um, and, you know, um, but with law enforcement, my heart kind of grieves about it, you know, but that book really encourages them to have friends even outside, you know, the first responder world, right? Where, you're not, where it's just not 24 seven conversation about that all the time. Right, so that's, that's this book, right? I don't know if you can see that. Yes, that is the book. Yes, I got a copy of it when I completed my CIT. And uh, I actually have another copy that we have in dispatch. So any of you LCSO TCs that are listening, that, well, you can't see it. I don't know why I'm showing it to everyone if you can see it. <laughs> but it's in the resource library, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. It's by Kevin M. Gilmartin, PhD. You can find it on Amazon. It's a good book. All of our dispatchers and officers get it as well um, at our department. And it's, uh, we've actually had him come and uh, he's done a training for families specifically, um, a couple of different sessions at different times so that families could come and attend a family only session so that they could understand the family aspect of things and how to better support their loved one that's involved in law enforcement. Nice. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to note um, it goes both ways, right? So as law enforcement, first responders, we, we deal with a lot and we want our spouse to be able to understand, but we also have to go through the work to understand what they're having to deal with on their side. And that's where the communication comes from because they're experiencing something or not because you're not sharing it with them. They don't, they're, they're lost. They're at a loss as to what to do and to help, and they so much want to, but if they're if they don't get the opportunity, you know, what what are you going to do? And and we create that. That's the issue. We're creating that 
essentially, and we don't realize that we're doing it because we're doing it under, because we love them and we, we want to protect them. You know, it's a, it's a vicious, vicious circle, it seems like. So. That's, anyway. that's so cool what you just said. We're not telling them because we love them and we want to protect them. And that's like the furthest thing that they're thinking, right? Right. Thinking, You're a jerk. Um, we, we can't <laughs> talk anymore, you know. Um, but I think it's so cool that you just said that because I, I would venture to guess a lot of them would never fill in the blank with the answer you just said, the truth. Yep. It's, it's right. a big deal. You know, they, they, I think I've talked about it a little bit with these guys before about you, you just stop talking sometimes with them because maybe they don't understand um and you know it's not good you know i can i can i'm on my second marriage um and i can honestly say i can communicate way better now and it's received way better now than it was before and it wasn't because it wasn't um my ex it wasn't because she didn't want to it's just because it didn't make sense. It didn't connect a lot of times. And that wasn't, you know, I, I see that now after having been divorced, it took me a while to realize that part of that was there. But, uh, you know, for me now, I know I can share and talk about anything and uh, not have to worry about it, you know, because it's not heavy and it's, it's almost like venting typically. And uh, I can get it out. And, and it's, it's, she doesn't take it on. It doesn't weigh on her. You know, uh, we have discussions and sometimes she has questions that I just can't answer because I don't know the answers to about a call that we took or whatever, but, um, you know, she still has that cute, uh, inquisitiveness of, uh, well, what happened? Help <laughs> I know. Right. I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> you know, that's what, you're not getting closure either, honey. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> that's funny. It's messed up, but so Pat, tell us a little bit. Um, I know, you know, by us, it's a requirement now for everybody to go through CIT training. All of us have been through CIT training. Uh, Brendan went through one. I think Brendan might've been the first person to go through it by us. I was the first, I, th I think uh, maybe one or two supervisors had taken it. Okay. Uh, but I was the first, uh, like, one of the very first in the state to take it. And that's actually where I met Pat. That was like maybe five or six years ago. Uh, the CIT that I took was the 40 hour class, which is more geared towards officers. Um, it wasn't too dispatch specific, but that's not to say that we weren't able to take any, anything from it because we obviously you know, were. It's just, we had to kind of mentally cater what we were being given to how we were going to give it or utilize it in dispatch. Uh, the book that we had, I actually brought it with me. Uh, it's a three ring binder. And I know that everyone else can't see this, but I'm bringing it to show those of you that my crew. Um, it's a three inch binder. It covered geriatric issues, uh, combat veterans, autism spectrum, um, co-occurring disorders, you name it. Um, it was very informative and I loved it. And I know, uh, and Pat, you can speak better on this, obviously. Um, you've been doing uh, the dispatch uh, side of CIT I want, since 2009. Um, actually, I'm trying to stop and think myself. It's, it was five years ago was my first dispatch training for Park Ridge Police Department. Oh, okay. Okay. 
um, for the dispatchers there. So, you know, just a little, I'll fill it in a little bit. Um, Park Ridge Police Department got a de uh, Department of Justice grant to do a two-year project called Beyond CIT. So the first part of that grant was to train all of our officers. So there was three 40-hour CIT classes. That involved, obviously, officers from other areas, too, because they're not pulling everybody off the street. Right. And they wanted to extend it to fire, uh, dis they wanted fire, dispatch, um, faith-based organizations, library staff, the school. They wanted another type of training. Um, so it wasn't the 40 hours that they went through. Um, so I I'm sorry, let me back up. So in, in this grant, it was a collaboration with, I believe, Lutheran General Hospital, um, uh, University of Chicago, because they did the, the stats. And then um, the grant was actually received by the Park, Park Ridge Police Department. And then I was called in as a consultant to design these shorter classes um, to educate first the team. So they, what they did, when it's called Beyond CIT, a community model, um, they put together stakeholders from Park Ridge, met together once a month for a um, well, it ultimately went for two years. And so, for example, the stakeholders were uh, the police chief, Frank Kaminsky, um, fire, um, there were school superintendents, there were mental health professionals that worked in Park Ridge, the local NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness Affiliate, um, representative from Lutheran General Hospital. In the room, there was about 20 of us. And so the, the goal was to identify the problems in Park Ridge. Now, prior to that, Lutheran General Hospital had done a study on um, the area of Park Ridge. And I believe it was found that there was a higher percentage of male suicides um, in a certain age group. Uh, but when I read the study, I had nothing to do with the grant as far as writing it, designing it, or anything. I just came into the project later on. But then I put to them, rather than just talking about depression, how about talking about bipolar, schizophrenia? Let's go farther. And which, you know, they agreed to. So my first dispatch training, I remember being stunned because there was about 23 dispatchers there. And so I started off the training, we developed it into an eight hour training and it was myself, um, then someone who had dispatch um, experience and that was it. We didn't have a CIT officer at that time. So I started off the training by saying, okay, so when you get a call for a CIT officer and they looked at me and they go, what's a CIT officer? We got two calls for that last week. I mean, my mouth about, I mean, I was trying not to show too much shock because I'm thinking, oh my God, my presentation needs to back up even further to what CIT is. So that was, you know, my introduction, um, realizing that dispatchers were not trained. And I then, it was at that moment too, through that grant that I realized that law enforcement re reports up to their agency, right, let's be. And then you have dispatchers and what 
their agency and then fire in their agency and they don't crisscross. You know what I mean? They right. don't, they're not intertwined. Um, and I just feel like sometimes it should be done, taught like active shooter, you know, when all agencies are together they're at the same time. Um, and the reason why uh, it was important for us for, um, to, to train the dispatch was when we were doing a class and you have to understand that CIT in the state of Illinois has been around since 2003. So it's in its 18th year, okay? Wow. I've been a CIT instructor for 11 years. Um, but it was in a class like five years ago, six years ago, where a dispatcher in that 40 hour training like you're talking about um, that was present she raised her hand and she said, you know, 20 years ago, we were taught as dispatchers, if somebody called with schizophrenia to take out aluminum foil, come to get aluminum foil, stick it in their hat and wear it. And wow. the state CIT instructor, John Williams, him and I, again, looked at each other just like, like in shock. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, that was a defining moment saying dispatchers need to be trained. Um, and... For me personally, I look at the dispatchers as the first first responders. And then working at NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, where we're telling family members to call dispatch and ask for a CIT trained officer and dispatch doesn't even know what it is. I mean, this it's the system that's crazy, right? It's, it's not the people, it's the system. Yeah. <laughs> right, because obviously there's a huge issue that's just being not address it's being ignored well i think a lot of it comes from and, and we saw some resistance uh with multiple agencies when they when narcan first came out right so as police officers there they were very resistant to giving people a shot um in administering narcan because they didn't feel they were qualified it was in their realm of duties um that they should even be doing this. And we found, I, I'm, I'm gonna say it, and if they don't like it too bad, we found a lot of success with them being trained on how to use Narcan. Mm -hmm. So it's the yep. same principle. You know, they're resistant to it because they're not medical professionals. They don't think it's part of their job. They shouldn't have to do this. But the reality is, is you've kind of been dealing with it all along. You just didn't know what it was. It was- it Well, was even to get back to- officers carrying an AED in the car. Right. It's right. not something that they would have been typically trained on, but obviously they've come across situations often enough that it makes sense for them to have necessary. it. Right. So I, we need to get to a point where an AED is the, on the same level as CIT. I think it's a, a thought process about what it is you're doing. And ultimately right. it's a tool. Right, it's like a turn. It it's like a, 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 a breaching tool. It's like a shield. You know, they're all they're just. It's just in a different format. And the more tools you have in your toolbox, the better equipped you are to handle more situations. That's not to say you're the medical professional. You're not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or anything along those lines. But it's giving you enough tools to recognize what's happening and kind of how to deal with it instead of it escalating or 
uh, being treated one way as uh, uh, disorderly conduct or whatever and taking them to jail when really they probably have to go be evaluated um, or to find out that they haven't been taking their medicine. You know, they, they felt great and it's, it's that one thing, you know, well, they haven't been taking it. Oh, okay. You know, they felt good, so they stopped taking their meds. Um, just recognizing all of those things, but the resistance to the change for something that they don't feel is for them to do is pretty strong. Um, and it doesn't matter what it is. If it doesn't fall within enforcing the law and arresting people, they don't wanna, they're very resistant to it happening. Um, it, and it's a mindset change, you know, it's good that it's happening. You know, my CIT was great. I, I thought my CIT training was, it was, I think it was a week long as well. Um, it was done at College of Lake County and uh, it was a room full of us doing it. And it was, it was really good. Um, we didn't get a book. So I'm looking at you, CLC. Got robbed on that. It's very rare to have dispatchers in the 40 hour training. Um, very, very rare. Um, part of it, it's because there's a waiting list for these classes. And then once, you know, um, a dispatcher goes through it, I mean, they usually love it. And like you said, there's certain components, use of force and things that, you know, don't necessarily, um, you know, a dispatcher has to be trained on. But um, it's good stuff to know, though. Pardon me? It's good stuff to know. No. It makes you more well, like the, the, the officer side, learning the stuff that they have to do and the things that they are dealing with. And, you know, that's, that's, that's good for us to know too. We're more well-rounded in that regard, I believe. Well, I think if you were trained together, it's misunderstandings, just like we were talking about in marriages, you know what I mean? There's miscommunication, um, you know, cause everybody can complain about everybody. But what I will say about the CIT training that I think is really avoid um, is that these officers now after being trained they're like okay so you don't want us to take them to jail um, where are we supposed to take them right and even when they take them to the hospitals and this is so frustrating so let's say they are able to take them involuntarily to the hospital and then they're out within six hours because their involuntary commitment paper, the ER doctor overrode it and said, no, they're fine to leave. Mm. Or they walk out of the hospital because there is no psych beds open there. And they've been waiting 24 hours, 48 hours while the emergency room social workers calling all over the state of Illinois looking for an open bed. And that person is sick of waiting, right? And you guys get a call that a patient's in their patient gown walking around. So the police, in a way, I always feel like they understand a lot like the family because the police are so frustrated that, yes, they want to be a resource. They want to hand people off to a resource. But the mental health resources aren't there. And that's what's really that's what's lacking and that's what needs to be changed. And that's what Park Ridge was trying to do by implementing Beyond CIT where they're educating the entire community um, at all different levels, trying to identify the gaps. And one of the biggest gaps was between police and the hospital where the people were being um, released, you know, um, they weren't accepting them, you know, in the emergency room, they were being released too quickly. But by being at that stakeholders um, meeting, right, once a month, they discussed their differences, they worked them out, 
And now it's not a problem. So sometimes it's just getting in the same room and talking, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I know when I worked in Los Angeles, they had a, um, I think almost every hospital in that area had a specific psych ER. It was not an emergency room for medical stuff. It was an emergency room specifically for psychiatric emergencies, which was, I mean, it was weird, but it was also really cool to see because it was somewhere for officers to take those people where they would actually be evaluated appropriately by the appropriate medical professional. And there are examples like you just mentioned all over of, you know, better situations, right? Like for me, you know, we have 222 hospitals in the state of Illinois and only 80 of them have psych beds. I think every single hospital oh, wow. has psych beds. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, other, you know, it, this is just, it is craziness, but it's the stigma from people wanting to go out and fight you know, for better services because they're keeping the secret. And um, there are, the other thing that maybe you might wanna know about, about CIT is in the state of Illinois, the curriculum is set, meaning the 40 hours that's taught, you're gonna hear the same, you're gonna have the same curriculum no matter where you go, what county you go to in Illinois. But now when we talk about CIT in other states, every county can develop their own 40 hour program and it can look very different. You know what I'm saying? So CIT does not necessarily, because someone has a CIT program, it does not necessarily follow the original Memphis model created back in 1988. That's too bad. There should be some standardization on that. Right. Now we're in the same boat. There's no standardization for dispatchers for, for yeah, training. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. 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 And there is an organization now called CIT International, and they have a conference. Um, and they are trying to get those standards in place that you talk about. Um, I, I just don't, I don't know. I, I think our nation makes things harder than they have to be sometimes, you know? Definitely. <laughs> and maybe it's because of the lawyers. I don't know. But. <laughs> It's always the lawyers. It is, yeah. It's always the damn lawyers. It's, it's funny that I was, uh, it's, it's how you say that, because I was thinking about that with police officers. You know, their resistance a lot of times and their frustrations are across the board. So when you talk about CIT and somebody getting turned out, okay, that's one thing. Uh, somebody they arrest and they charge accordingly, their charges get changed. or their charges get denied, you know? So they're like, what, what am I doing now? You know, so I could see where their frustrations would come in. It's like, okay, well, you're gonna train me on one more thing. And uh, now I'm either gonna be liable for it, which was part of the issue when it came to uh, Narcan, you know, what's, the li what's my liability right, as right. a non-medical professional administering this drug to somebody to, yep. to save their life? Um, you know, so their resistance is valid a lot of times because they don't get the support or they don't feel like they're getting the support that they need because they're doing these things and embracing them and then they just get they just kick get kicked down you know because I don't, for whatever reason you know so it becomes all in their opinion you're absolutely right the other thing um 
CIT is not mandated by the state of Illinois. A lot of people think it is. So the 40-hour CIT class is not a mandated class, but the eight-hour class is, okay? It used to be the eight-hour class they had to do every three years. There's been talk about it being every one year, honestly, because they're still working within the parameters of um, the laws that have just been changed. So CIT is not, the 40 hour class is not state mandated. And if, and if I were to tell you, if you look into the Memphis model, they never wanted all of the officers to be trained in 40 hours. They wanted it to be a select group like the canine officers or, um, you know, um, what am I, what am I thinking? The other select groups that are in there. Um, Evidence technicians, a specialty group. Yes. And so juvenile officers or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you wanted to be a CIT officer, you were actually supposed to go through a screening process because a lot of it is communication and empathy, but you know, and we, not everyone's strong suit. Exactly. Exactly. And so the police chiefs, you know, a lot of them are having all their officers go through it because of the liability factor, right? So, you know, to some degree, you know, there's pluses and minuses to it, right? right. You might water down what a specialty officer really can do. And I've heard dispatchers say that sometimes they'll notice a certain officer when it's a CIT call, if available will respond because they kind of have more of the gift. They're not kind of straying from the call or hanging back. Um, and so I think it's important, you know, I, you know, it's, I guess it's just the challenges that we face, but I, I love you guys. I have the greatest amount of respect. And if I never got into this, I would have never known what it is that you do. And I just want, honestly, um, I want the world to know because what they're seeing on TV is so distorted, you know? There are bad apples in every profession. I don't yes. care, doctors, lawyers, teachers, police officers, dispatchers, right? Yeah, yes, for sure. Absolutely. But there's one other thing I just wanna share with you because it, it kind of meant a lot to me. Um, a dispatcher shared with me that her um, sister was very psychotic and they didn't know where she was, what community, and she was going play and she was very worried about her, but it was very hard for her to stay focused on her job when she was worrying about where her sister is and what might be happening to her. And as much as I know that this is the, you know, this is something you would never want to happen. She um, sent a ambulance to the wrong address because her head was someplace else, you know? And um, she'd been a dispatcher for more than 25 years. And they did work it out, but I'm just trying to say, you never know in the dispatch world, you know, what one out of four families are being impacted and they're just keeping their secret. Because we all have to be wise about who we share what with, right? Because some people just want to use it as gossip. And then there's the people that really want to help us. Um, I, I agree with that. Um, one of my theories on that, though, is if you hide it, and, and it's okay to be private. There's nothing wrong with it. Right. Uh, and I, I don't hold it against anybody for wanting to stay private. But 
there are those people out there that like to take your information and try to quote unquote use it against you. But if you talk about it and you're open about it, it can't be used against you. What are, what are you gonna, what I told you that my mom is bipolar and I'm going through a lot of stuff. Okay, what do you got? You have nothing to use against me anymore. Yeah. You know, if I'm, if I'm not talking about it, then that gives the gossiping person or persons something to talk about and there's a, a quote unquote well, give story. them the power right right so being open is helpful to you because you're able to get it out and talk about it people can have empathy because more people than not at least i can speak for our agency are going to have empathy for you or try to help you out than than not uh, but they can't if they don't know and that person that's gossiping if it's out there you know they can't use it against you. It's, it's already known. What are you going to, you don't have a secret. So I've, I've just taken that away from you. Um, right. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's a choice that you have to make, but you have to know that those people have nothing if you, if you just, if you're, if you're, so me, I'm an open book. I have no problem talking and saying what's going on in life and all of this. And they, they got nothing. They got nothing. They, they really don't. And, that, and that's changed for me over the last several years. There was times that I didn't talk about certain stuff and I'm sure and know that certain things were discussed and used against me or tried to make me look bad. And now it's like, sorry to say it, fuck you. Here's everything I've got and uh, you can deal with it. Yeah. I mean, we're all human, right? And yeah. everybody's got stuff, you know? Mm. Um, <clears throat> but particularly in this area, um, it's still, it's, we're getting better. In fact, uh, we developed a program at NAMI DuPage called Ending the Silence, where they actually went into the high school classrooms freshman year and went over the signs and symptoms. And that program became a national program now with NAMI National. So I just wanna say to anyone listening that really wants um, accurate information to go to NAMI, N-A-M-I.org. Um, you know, um, because all of their resources there are free, uh, free for the families, free for the individual in crisis and advocacy work. And the other thing is we've got to change the mental health code law. Waiting until somebody's crazy enough to harm somebody else or themselves yes. is crazy. Yeah. That is crazy. You know, you can't, you know, and this is what family members don't understand. When the police come out, and they say, you know, my son, you know, he's down in the basement, sees these UFOs in the backyard, these aliens are coming in. And, but he's not a threat to himself or his mom or anybody else. And the police leave, then the public, that family gets mad at the police because they don't know the mental health code law. Right. How many families with these illnesses have never heard of the largest organization, NAMI? They don't know. They don't know when they start screaming at somebody that's psychotic that they're making their illness worse. They just right. want the behavior to stop. Yeah. You know. So we we got to help families get connected. Um, you know, to understand even more. Anyway, sorry, off my soapbox. Please, no. this is, that's what this is. No, this, this is so whole right. episode is your soapbox. That's, that's why right. we brought you on because we want this to be uh, something that people are far more aware of than they are right now. And yeah, I like you were saying, um, I think people don't understand that our officers' hands are tied um, as far as 
what what I hear constantly from officers is I can't violate anyone's civil rights. So if mm -hmm. someone's not a danger to themselves, a danger to others, or anything like that, um, there's nothing they can do. Right. Unless the person's willing to go. I tell people all the time, and, and I use the term loosely, um, obviously it's slang to say the word crazy, but it's not illegal to be crazy. Yes. Exactly. Be crazy. I hate that. There's, there's but I hate that. Because so. we have a lot of, you know, what we call regulars that get called on a lot because they're, um, you know, this person's doing a chicken dance in the middle of the street and has been for three hours now. Well, that's not a crime. He's not willing to go to the hospital. He's not really endangering anyone. So this is where we're at like they can't do anything can about do? it yeah. and it's like clearly people drive by and they get upset and they're like well clearly this person's having some kind of mental health crisis and we're like clearly yeah right. that's the end of the story <laughs> like we can't do anything about it and the sad thing is and that's why i hate you know sometimes on the national news well they'll say well the sheriffs went out to that house 30 times well probably 30 times before they weren't a threat you know what i'm right. saying and you know um, the other thing is our state beds, as far as state psychiatric beds in Illinois, we used to have 33,000 and now we have 1,100. Wow. Wow. Our jails are so crowded because um, our state beds are full. And the sad thing is some of those people have been in those state beds five years, 13 years. So that's not ever going to be an open bed. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Right. We're housing them in the wrong place and just, just adding on to the state hospitals, $799 a day times 365 days a year is like 290,000 a year. And I know someone has been in there five years. We've already spent a million dollars. He's 37 years old. I think somebody for $290,000 can do a better job, quite frankly. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know. Because um, isn't the goal to get them out of there eventually? Well, let's just say this. You can have a website and you can have a website that say what all your values are, but are you living them? Right. I will say, look at the mission statement and then talk to the patient. Um, I, I, I just have a very close, I know someone who used to speak for my company. In fact, that's the other thing when we wanna reduce the stigma um, the number one way to reduce stigma is by people sharing their personal stories. Mm -hmm. um, when they talk about what it was like to be psychotic and now they're doing well, you would never pick them out in a crowd, right? Right. Um, but we just, uh, again, it's the system that's crazy. I don't know what else to say, you know? Well, it, it's, everybody has their own motivations, like you just said, and, and I'm not afraid to, to speak my mind obviously so a lot of times I think um, it's you know you may have an organization that wants to put them in there but let's face it you're getting two hundred thousand dollars a year or two hundred some thousand dollars a year for a person and then you multiply that by however many people you keep there uh, business is better to keep them in there than it is to get them freed out that's just all there is to it. and they're, they're getting paid and that's not being you know, that's not the whole uh, conspiracy theory side of it. It's just a reality. There's no motivation for them to get them out of there. They're making, they're making money. 
Um, so just to add to that, Norm, if they go into a nursing home, because nursing homes can have, you know, psychiatric patients. Yeah. Home love psychiatric patients because they're not going to die soon. They can feed themselves and clothe themselves. They're kind of like steady income. So, mm. um, you know, I, I don't know. It's just, I'm, sometimes I get very angry at just how ridiculous this is. From the minute you guys get a call, right? And there's so many disconnects, whether the disconnect is with the officer or the disconnect doesn't happen until the hospital or the disconnect is at discharge, you know? Um, it, there's just so many missing links, so many missing links. Absolutely. This, you know, interview because I hope someone hears this and can help make a change. I agree. We, we appreciate you coming on, Pat. Thank you so much for sharing your story. That's very personal. And, and obviously you've come to terms and you utilize it in a very positive way. Um, but it's, it's awesome to hear, uh, gives us some insight as to why you do what you do, because uh, this field isn't usually something, uh, especially when you have that much passion for it, doesn't just come out of nowhere. There's, there's a reason people get into it and they're that passionate about it. And uh, it was, it's tough to hear because I'm sorry you had to go through that, but it's obviously made you the person that you are. And uh, we appreciate you sharing that very yes. much. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. The only thing I, I'll just say is, you know, I was it, was, it was very difficult, right, in, in the house. But God had a plan. I just didn't know it. You know what I'm saying? But my plan was never to talk about this. But his plan was for me to talk about it. Right. I didn't know it. So thank you for what you do. Each one of you. Thank you. No, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. We, yeah. we definitely, we definitely want to have you on again. Um, you know, talk more about this. I don't think we can, we can talk enough about it. No. That's the reality. So, um, you know, I think these guys would agree too. I, I just, yeah, we could, we yeah. could sit here definitely. and talk to you about it for seven hours. So. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And if you ever need a connection to someone else that you want for your radio program, whether it's someone, you know, who is a presenter for the police, you know what I mean? They tell their story. Um, you know, just anyone, if you want one of the CIT coordinators, anything, and you, you know, just reach out to me, I might have a connection for you. Very cool. Awesome. So I, I know we've gone over just a bit from the time frame that we wanted, but before we go, if, if you can quickly just uh, tell us uh, about the, the eight-hour dispatcher CIT training, what, what's involved in that, what dispatchers can expect, uh, and uh, how people can find that training and how people can reach out to you. Okay. Um, so the CIT concept for 911 uh, dispatch personnel is an eight hour course. Um, we have four instructors. So I myself do the morning session of uh, just the signs and symptoms of adult mental illness. And then in the afternoon, we actually have a CIT officer who shares um, active listening um, skills and kind of like the relationship that does or doesn't exist between officers and dispatch. And then finally, we um, close with self-care. So we have um, Ariana Kitty. She's a op operations manager um, for over, I don't know, 20 years, I think. Um, and our CIT officer comes, she's a sergeant 
um, in the Northwest community. And so we're bringing in different perspectives. Now, the one thing, if somebody took the 40 hour training, CIT training, they might be disappointed because how do you take 40 hours and squish it into eight, right? Um, we recognize that we probably need to have at least like a second day, but we agreed when we started this, let's just try and get day one out there. Let's just, you know, see if we can get this day one. So they can register. We have two classes coming up in Arlington Heights, both in um, August and in October, but they just can contact me right through the website or pat at visionforchange.net or call and register for one of the classes. If one of the agencies wants to host a class, um, we can talk about them hosting a class in their area because Arlington Heights isn't close for everybody. And right. the Illinois Law Enforcement Standards Board has certified this class um, as part of the CIT series. So the mobile training units throughout the state of Illinois, they are now offering. I just can't, um, I can't take registration for that because that has to go through the mobile training unit in their area. Okay, so do you do you just do Illinois only or do you travel? Um, we have only done Illinois. Um, it's really funny when we first started the company, our first request was like Oklahoma, you know, but oh, wow. um, I know. Um, and I've talked to people in Colorado and um, we've had other dispatchers come from Wisconsin and Indiana um, we're talking about going online, but there's also something that you might lose online, but of we are will, all of us are willing, are willing to travel because we, you know, we are all that passionate. What I did forget to say is that we do have somebody with a lived experience who shares their story directly in that training. It's really cool because I think that's the most powerful part is when they get to ask questions, you know, yeah. to the person about when they were psychotic and, and how you know, how can we communicate with, with them during that time? That was one of my favorite aspects from the training is getting to hear firsthand from people that were affected in their experiences, both negative and positive with police that kind of help, you know, bridge that gap and make this program a success. Right, right. So that, that's, that's it. And um, I will send you some information you mentioned about something on your website, you know, that you can put up to help because we do have tips on communicating with people. And then we do awesome. the state resources and the national resources, and they're all free. And the good news is even if you're in a rural area, um, a lot, as you well know, right? There's a lot of Zoom trainings going on. So people in rural communities um, have a lot more access now. That might've been just one little blessing coming out of COVID-19, even though there was a lot of ugly things about COVID-19. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely Absolutely. made it a little easier to spread the word a little bit, you know, and, and made people think about things differently, how they're going to get right. their training and stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. I still thank prefer you. in person. Thank you guys for sharing. What's what was that? that? I said, thank you guys for sharing your stories. Hmm. I, I learn every time someone shares something. And awesome. we don't. I love the term you didn't want to dump, trauma dump. You know, <laughs> trauma dump. Yes, I'm yeah. leave that alone. This is yeah. just thank you, uh, yeah. thank you again. Yes, thank you so thank much you we'll for coming on. Sure thank you. Um, yeah, if you need good. any, if you if you guys need anything, 
professionally, personally, just reach out to me. I'll be glad to do what I can do. Absolutely. And we'll put your contact okay. info in the show notes and everything. So thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Take care. Thanks again. Pat Doyle with Vision for Change. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye, you. Bye guys. Hello, first responders. I wanted to make sure you had Pat's information before we let you go. You can find them on Facebook at Vision for Change. You can also go to their website at visionforchange.net, and there they have all the information on how you can schedule crisis intervention training for your first responders.